What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Insurrectioning Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right. Hello. Welcome to Insurrection Inc. Uh, This is a very special episode because we are welcoming our brand new co-host, who you may have heard on previous episodes. He is our favorite 12-year-old. We love him to pieces, and his name is Aiden. Say hi, Aiden. Hello. Thank you, Jay. You're welcome. And, uh, He's 12 so and that- a half. <laughs> At least. <laughs> uh, how do you do it when you have to hold it like I'm this many? How, how do you hold up your hands? Do you do like do you flash 10 and then two and a half? Uh, I think so what you do. Yeah, you flash 10 and then two and you cut one of your index fingers in half and hold up the stub. What oh, the fuck? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah. you know, just use your <laughs> toes. What the fuck? I was just about to say that. Thank you, Tim. Same way, please. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. I have a story like that. Uh, once I went to North Carolina for a vacation when I was like five, and we went skiing. And if you were under five, you could ski for free. And I had just turned five. So my dad told me to lie to the woman and tell her I was four. <laughs> so when she asks me, uh, how old are you? I hold up my full hand. I'm like this many. And then I see I'm putting up five. So I just... I don't even put my thumb down. I like take my other hand and push my thumb down and go four. And she still let me ski for free. <laughs> that's awesome. Anyway, that's not our topic. Jack. It's not our topic for today. I, I, am not, <laughs> I am not moral. I am very immoral. I believe in illegalism. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, that is related to our topic today. Uh, Porter and I have had a lot of conversations lately about left and right and labels and all that sort of bull crap. So, uh, Forder, why don't you tell them about what inspired these sorts of conversations? Uh, yeah, I think it started when, let's see, it was, it was definitely a Pete Quinones interview. I don't remember mm-hmm. which one came first, but one, he was talking to Scott Horton, and then there was another episode where he was talking to Wally Conger. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. Scott Horton is director of the Libertarian Institute, big anti-war guy. Uh, Wally Conger is a lesser-known name, but he's the one who wrote Agorist Class Theory, which was kind of drawing on um, uh, Konkin's work and kind of synthesized it and made a, a class theory out of it. It's like a little 30, 40 page pamphlet. Um, and the subtitle, which is controversial, is like a left libertarian approach to class analysis or something like that. It, it has the word, it has the phrase left libertarian in there. And, and in both of those conversations, yeah, and class, in both of those conversations, um, Scott Horton and Wally Conger both brought up Rothbard's essay called uh, Left and Right, The Prospects for Liberty. And uh, so I read it and then sent it to Jay. I was like, wow, this is this is crazy. I've never I didn't know half the stuff in there. And so so kind of a summary of it is Rothbard traces the intellectual origins of libertarianism and uh, kind of compares the left and right, obviously, because that's the title. And he says that the the conservatives the right wing have always been against liberty even though it, it, this is kind of confusing because in modern times we'd consider maybe the republicans to not be libertarian certainly but you know the american right to be closer to libertarianism than the american left with the the socialists and the communists and whatever and uh, even the the social democrats who aren't quite as far left as the uh, the democratic socialists but uh, still, still in m- more uh, 
bigger opponents to liberty than than the right. But Rothbard says historically, uh, in in the intellectual traditions that came out of Europe and were transplanted to America, uh, it was always the right that was against liberty, and the the left was I mean the really really the far left was libertarianism, starting with like Lord Acton in uh, England. Adam Smith was a, a classical liberal. He would have been considered on the left uh, for his time. And uh, this, there was, there were more radical elements of this as well. Like uh, later, there were there were Bastiat. He was on the left. He was on the same side of the French Parliament as uh, Pierre Joseph Proudhon, who was uh, also a libertarianist. He's also a socialist. He wasn't quite the same as Bastiat economically, but politically they were fairly similar, and they were both considered pretty far to the left for their time. The right was always in support of the monarchy, in support of this uh, rigid hierarchical political structure, um, what what they sometimes called a natural order, although Hoppe would disagree with that, and we'll get, get to that more later. Um, and then in America, the, the far left would have been people like uh, first Benjamin Tucker, who was also uh, kind of kind of a leftist even in the modern sense. He was yeah. kind of socialist. But um, then Lysander Spooner, who wasn't really a leftist even in the modern sense, but he would have been considered in the same line he was he was both um he was a an individualist anarchist just like benjamin tucker and yeah, the even only thing like, about uh, Proudhon to that, an extent the only thing about spooner that would make him closer to modern day left was he did not like landlords right and i think he was also like right. a part yeah. of the iww for a little yeah. bit yeah yeah he was part he joined he the was union. He, he called himself a socialist but it does it did, didn't mean the same thing he wasn't a marxist now most right, socialists yeah. today acknowledge Marx's influence. Even I mean, Proudhon and Marx hated each other. <laughs> Benjamin Tucker wasn't a huge fan of Marx at all. Um, yeah, and, Benjamin and Tucker Spooner. actually hated anarcho. Uh, Tucker yeah, hated I mean, anarcho-communists. Was that Thoreau? Probably both of them, but I know Tucker did. He basically said, "You're not anarchists." He said, yeah, "Communism think, and yeah. anarchy are are um, completely incompatible." And Tucker defended property explicitly. He wasn't a huge fan of uh, of capitalism in the sense of private owners' capital hiring out wage workers, but he also didn't oppose. He didn't. He didn't oppose it on um, moral grounds exactly. He didn't think it was ethically permissible to prevent wage labor with violence, like um, like some of the state communists who believe in you know killing uh, private business owners and stuff like that. Uh, Tucker was always a hundred percent free market. He just thought that in a in a true free market, uh, there would be no wage labor. Which, uh, of course, the Austrians, uh, especially Rothbard, he corrected Tucker and Spooner on this later. The Austrians yeah. would disagree with that view of wage labor. But um, Tucker they, also became a sterner right egoist at the end of his life. I forgot about that. Yeah, that was interesting. Oh, that's kind of weird. But my, my point is. These guys were all considered the far left of the ideological spectrum, and the right was always authoritarian and hierarchical. Not that anarchy is necessarily opposed to hierarchy, but I mean enforced hierarchy, uh, state hierarchy. Um, it was what the right hierarchy. represented. What was that? Involuntary hierarchy, especially. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and so Rothbard kind of contrasts that in uh, left and right. And basically says that real libertarianism is far left. Yeah. 
and uh he in an earlier episode i claimed that fascists were just right-wing communists and then reading rothbard confirmed that yeah that's true because he i should mention this i completely forgot about that part um he he also traces kind of the the roots of socialism where that came out of he says marx is actually like sort of right wing and then there were different branches of socialists that uh kind of sprung off there was the um, Proudhonian branch who was socialist but not a Marxist and he was you know pretty libertarian although had some uh, wacky economic ideas but mm-hmm. then there were also like the state socialists and Rothbard calls it basically a confused middle ground they believed in using the conservative political structure the state to enforce liberal goals which was uh, you know freedom for the exploited masses uh, and of course, their definition of exploitation is is different than what the libertarian class theory definition would be. But uh, libertarians do have a class theory. That's uh, part of what Wally Conger discussed on Pete Quinones's show. Uh, and, and so there is this common belief in uh, the existence of exploiters and exploited, and that division in society. Libertarians just believe that the state is the exploiting class and the um everyone else everyone who's not a state you know the private productive class is the exploited class whereas the socialists would divide it on ownership of capital and and rothbard says that's why it's a confused middle ground they get the division wrong and they have uh liberal goals they they have goals of you know freeing the masses but they don't have the uh the right political structure ideas and they don't have uh, the actual division between exploiter and exploited, correct. And and so he actually says libertarianism, true liberalism, is farther to the left. He put, put socialism in the middle, conservatism on the right, and uh, liberalism, what we now call libertarianism, on the left. I'd say that's a pretty good summary of his piece. And, I mean, if you read it, it basically makes the political compass impossible to map. That's one of the first exactly. things. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it just makes because then where would you put somebody like Hoppe on his uh you know on his political compass where See, it's like that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Because yeah. then Hoppe is very, you know, would be politically left wing. Yeah, exactly. And, but then he's like so culturally right wing and traditionalist, where you know his argument is that if we have a state that it's better to have a monarchy than uh, any form of democracy or republicanism, which is antithetical to what Rothbard talks about in that piece, because in that piece, Rothbard specifically says, like, these revolutions against the old order were necessary for the advent of freedom in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, he says that liberalism has, its history was a revolution against the monarchy, um, and that the monarchy was the conservatives. And this is also another interesting divide uh, is that the, the classical liberals like Smith, Bastiat, up, up to Minger, and even Mises, um, they all were Democrats, not necessarily like full social Democrats, obviously, but they believed in uh, a limited representative democracy, you, you know, delineated by some sort of constitution to limit its powers. Uh, just like the American founders, they were influenced by the same exact ideas. They opposed a monarchy, except for Hamilton. Fuck Hamilton. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Hamilton was a conservative in Rothbard's sense. But 
Oh, the American founders were the, the quintessential example of this in terms of what liberals believed about the political structure. They uh, were in favor of a strictly limited democracy, but opposed to monarchy. Uh, and, and Hoppe kind of throws a wrench into this whole thing because he says, actually, democracy is less liberal than monarchy. Neither of them is optimal, but monarchy is actually better for economic liberty and property rights and all the things libertarians and classical liberals believe in. And uh, that that complicates Rothbard's analysis because conservatism was supposed to be authoritarian and monarchical, but it, it's the monarchy is actually better for liberty than democracy. And I think Hoppe actually proves that pretty well. I think I'm convinced by his arguments about democracy. Um, but you I don't know. know you know the thing with Hoppe's argument? It's that I'm sure from him, it's entirely cohesive, but the people that follow him tend to sort of forget that whole period between the medieval era and, you know, all the liberal revolutions that happened after the Treaty of Westphalia, where, you know, monarchs were no longer these sort of decentralized powers and became absolute rulers of their lands, and that was not a very liberal period at all. Right, and that's exactly where the liberal revolutions came from. It was against the centralized monarchies. It, uh, liberalism really only ra rose up in the latter half of the 18th mm -hmm. century, you know, from 1750 on, although you could trace its roots to John Locke in the, the late um, 17th oh, yeah. century. Regarding, uh, so regarding maybe, the liberal revolutions, because you just mentioned it, so we don't have to go off topic later on again. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in Germany, there was a liberal revolution in 1848. Like There were also liberal revolutions all over Europe at that time. Yeah, yeah and, that year was a big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there was basically a parliament. It was called a senate. And like, it was pretty similar to what Rothbard mentioned in his, in his uh, essay. The revolutionaries, the liberals, which probably nowadays would be considered some right-leaning, moderate libertarians were sitting on the far left and the uh, socialists were sitting basically in the middle and the monarchists were sitting on the right. So Which they, to throw yeah, that in. they stole that from the French parliament because that's exactly how yeah. we got these terms. So basically it went from, <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so what they considered left at the time was basically revolutionary and like a new order and what they considered far right at the time was uh, maintaining the old order basically. That's exactly yeah. what it is. And so yeah. it definitely the arguments of monarchy tend to skip over that whole treaty of Westphalia part because I can totally understand, you know, you learn your history and you, you know that medieval Europe was very decentralized. It was all these different power structures competing against each other, which basically stalled each other's power. And yeah, I can totally understand arguments for that when you have I mean, guilds you want to use monarchies. Germany as an example. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you, you use have Germany as an example. They were like hundreds of, of princes yeah. and principalities inside just that that one little land area yeah. and then and uh, then germany took longer to do other. this but yeah exactly and they're competing with each other and, and germany then you have took the church, longer to centralize yeah. you have the church that's competing with each other you have churches competing with each other because you have protestants versus catholics you have guilds competing with everybody so it's this whole it's a very decentralized system so yeah of course i can totally understand the arguments for that but then post treaty of westphalia I, I, the absolute monarchs were terrible. I mean, they were, th that's when you started seeing like 
sure, governments making laws didn't really come around until Napoleon when he created the civic code, but you did see like kings making decrees and levying taxes and doing all these things. That's why parliaments started popping up all over the place. That's why we have a Congress because that starts in England after the Treaty of Westphalia. You have an absolute monarch rising, taking control over all the lords and all the little dominions and all that. And parliament rises up to make sure that he doesn't have all the tax powers that he wanted. So yeah, it's a, it's a little yeah. bit of a wonky argument because it skips mm-hmm. over that entire like 300 year period. I, hmm. I, I would say it is kind of a wonky argument in that sense. And I'm not 100% convinced that uh, the monarchies were better than the democracies that developed out of them because it is true that the, uh, the liberalization of economies and the death of mercantilism and stuff was associated with uh, great restrictions on the monarchy and these uh, more democratic reforms coming out, especially in like England and, and France took a while, but France eventually came around. Uh, and so that does definitely complicate it. But I think Coppa's criticism is is worthwhile to entertain because one hundred percent. Because uh, especially when you consider feudalism as a system, uh, Hoppe notes, of course, that it wasn't perfect. the The main problem was the existence of serfdom. That uh, these these rulers in a lot of places all over Europe had serfs, which were basically that was the European, it was the white European version of slavery, <laughs> and. Uh, Obviously, no no private property. They didn't have the homestead principle apply to them. Uh, that was a problem. But otherwise, and like if, if you had that, then feudalism was like one step away from anarcho-capitalism. It was, uh, yeah, and some. I mean, they they had the uh, hereditary aristocratic order and stuff like that, which uh, wasn't libertarian, obviously, because I mean, any rulership isn't libertarian. But they they did at the same time have basically because it was so decentralized and all of these uh, powers were so small that they basically had competing legal systems. Even in the same area, there was a polycentric legal system. Especially in places like um, Ireland. Yeah, depending on whom you offended and and Mm -hmm. what exactly the case was, you would uh, go through different legal systems and different sets of laws. Yeah. uh, I wasn't there for that episode, but that's what Keith Preston discussed with the rest of you mm-hmm. uh, in our interview with him. Uh, uh, another thing and, that and is that's, sort of... Oh, no, continue. Go ahead, no. Uh, another thing that's left out of the argument is that, like I mentioned before, guilds. I mean, even though before the Treaty of Westphalia, these states were a lot more decentralized, it still would not be... If we understand that all freedom comes from economic freedom, then still the liberal revolutions after the medieval era, after the Treaty of Westphalia, were still more libertarian than even, you know, if you take feudalism out of the picture, still the guild system was incredibly economically restrictive. I, you're looking at something where I, it's probably the closest thing to communism that you can get because these were centralized organizations dominating each sector of the economy, deciding who goes in, who produces what, how much of what they can produce, what deals are made. So that was still economically, it was very centralized in that yeah, way. Yeah, but it, it, it's. it's not close to communism just because it's super centralized i mean it was still pretty pretty fucked up because you had to pay a lot as a customer as a consumer 
So <laughs> I yeah, mean, I'm saying super, also... super centralized, but yeah. I don't know. Just generally, I think uh, before Marx, we saw a shift towards decentralization, and after Marx, we saw like a like a shift towards centralization again. Like it's it's not yeah. completely true historically, but just there's a tendency, I would say so. Oh, one hundred percent. Oh, Aiden, you got any thoughts? Um, I did, but uh, I mean, you guys pretty much. I mean, feel free to reiterate. That's no problem. Well, I mean, um, uh, I lost it. Okay, <laughs> we'll get you. We'll I'll get jump, you. We'll, I'll jump in. Yeah, we'll get you I'll back. Jump we'll in we'll reel you back in after. Sure, sure, sure. But I mean, also one thing is that this theory that Rothbard had, even if it's historically accurate, it means fuck all today. And it, I, I just mean it absolutely means fuck all. Because if you take one look at the libertarian left of today, it is not anybody that what we understand as right libertarian <laughs> really wants to associate with. I mean, we try at least, but it's really hard for us to try. We, we try, but they don't, they don't like us, number one. <laughs> yes. First of all, they don't like us, they hate us. They want us dead. Yeah. Somebody bring up the picture of the like, BLM protest with the uh, oh, commie the red tre- flag. Oh, yeah. says, we will tread. Those are BLM is like grabbing the gas yeah. and those are, those are authoritarian leftists. So let's make a distinction. But even okay. when you get down to mutualists, anarcho syndicalists, yeah. uh, all that shit, I mean, they're the ones that they start playing not a real anarchist. Because, of course, you log into Twitter, you log into Instagram, you see right libertarians going back and forth all day. Anarcho communists aren't real anarchists because they're collectivists. Well, I mean, they were the first anarchists. You might not like their system, but they wait, wait, still wait. technically are anarchists. Hey, that you just made the perfect transition to our next topic, actually. Okay. No, we wanted to talk about um, about the labels of of how uh, and oh, yeah. and caps go after each other regarding the terms of uh, anarchism and libertarianism. Yeah, and labels. I mean, labels fucking suck. And this is how this all goes hand in hand because. Libertarianism right now is a hard time finding a fucking label. It can't even find a political quadrant to be in. I've even seen Hopkins claim like authoritarian right is still libertarian. So, uh, <laughs> see, those are the Hopkins that I don't think understand. No. As this really weird dude on Twitter, his profile picture is a Hopian. Is a Hoppa. And he posted a political compass and was like, yeah, authoritarian right is still libertarian because blah, 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 blah. And I saw it and I was like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? So libertarianism recently, is very important. Yeah. I, I recently got an article published on Mises.org. If you follow any of my social media, you saw that. Um, but this comment was, uh, it was some crazy dude. And he said, uh, oh, what was it about? I don't know. He was, I the article was about kind of collapsing politics in uh, in america right now and like why everyone hates each other so much and he said his comment was basically like i don't know why austrians are so worried about the the collapse of the state and i was like first of all it's not what i said but the rest <laughs> of his comment was hoppa was right democracy has failed time for uh emperor trump to take over and exterminate <laughs> the communists and i was like now hold on um- I don't think that's what Hoppe says. <laughs> no, literally, your art, your article would have been peak Hoppian because he's all about radical decentralization, and that's what your article yeah, was that's arguing what the article for. Was about yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think what, also, what, 
But a lot of fair, people his prof- also no, but hold on, his profile picture was a yeah. uh, Trump groiper. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, okay, and the thing is with Hoppe, like you, I think I'm pretty sure this is a quote by him, but like I could be completely wrong by this. Uh Hoppe, if you hear this. Uh, don't come at me, please. If Hoppa somehow finds this, don't come at me, please. <laughs> but um, like his, if his somehow thing... finds this, please come at him. We'd love to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> but go on um, in. <laughs> but I think uh, one of his uh, one thing he said though is like with his radical decentralization, he just wants to like his idea for a perfect Europe would be a million Liechtensteins. Yeah, I just wanted to <laughs> say the exact same thing because <laughs> it was I a think million the, the, the thing most leftists get wrong when about Hopper when they say, "Oh, Hopper wants like some authoritarian, I don't know, dictatorship or monarchy instead of a democracy, a liberal democracy," is that they don't understand that he doesn't want like I don't know the EU as a monarchy just existing basically with a monarch. He wants like a super decentralized system. And not like big super states uh, who will go after each other probably after some time. Yeah. No, and that's definitely because that is his peak argument. But also, uh, our avid listeners include Hans Hermann Hoppe, David Hume, posthumously, <laughs> and uh, Andrew Cuomo. Oh my God. <laughs> they are all very big fans of the show. I constantly get letters from them. It's a little weird with David Hume because I have to pull out like the Ouija board. But besides that, <laughs> for everyone who's confused right now, which is everyone except the people talking to each other right now, which, <laughs> that's a that's a joke from the group chat yesterday. We were discussing was it yesterday? Two days ago? Yeah, two days ago. Like, uh, we were discussing David Hume, which I, we can bring up now. It's worth it. Uh, we we're discussing. I was I was mostly talking because I was reading an essay of his. Uh, he's kind of a proto Hoppian, actually. Uh, because David Hume was uh, he was a, a moderate conservative. He was a, a Whig, uh, but he wasn't like full on total monarchist. And also, he was one of the you know early classical economists. He was good friends with Adam Smith, and he made devastating attacks of mercantilism. Uh, his, his price specie flow mechanism is what it's called now. Is still taught in international monetary economics. It's not always attributed to him now but he was the first one to kind of outline it and that's a critique of limitations on trade and the uh, mercantilist policies that were associated with with conservatives and monarchs who were trying to uh, give their countries an economic advantage Uh, so he was a huge critic of that he was very liberal economically but uh, conservative in terms of political structure and uh, in in that sense he's very hoppy right Uh, Gisapa rejects the classical liberal political structure the the democracy the even representative democracy in favor of uh monarchy although of course hoppa ultimately prefers uh extreme decentralization and anarcho-capitalism but but hume is still uh still kind of in that same vein philosophically so he's someone else that uh, kind of throws a wrench in Rothbard's theory in, in left and right, and it, it just complicates it a little bit. I just want to take a quick break to announce that we have a Patreon now, where you can support us with money for some reason. That is patreon.com slash insurrectioninc. And if you don't want to support us with fiat, you can go to float.app slash insurrectioninc. That is F-L-O-T-E dot app and give us cryptocurrency. 
And if you don't want to give us money monthly, because why would you? You can go on down to our merch shop and pick something you like. Links will be in the description, and don't forget to join our Discord. Now back to the show. What did you say that made me say he's an avid listener of the show? You were having a different conversation with Stratty at the same time I sent the quote from David. Oh, yeah, we were talking about that dickhead that was in the Discord. (laughs) 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 I was like, well, I advertised the Discord on my story because I banned him. He got real pissy and started insulting me in the DMs, and those messages are going at the same time that Porter's talking about David Hume. So Porter yeah, and you were like, about "Oh David yeah, I Hume. talked to." Him. <laughs> yeah, so I thought he sent me insulting messages. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "David Hume sends me." Discord. David Hume sends me messages, and I got him mixed up with Michael Humer for a second, so I had to look it up, and I was like, "Oh yeah, no, David Hume died 300 years ago." So I was like, "Yeah, he sends it posthumously. <laughs> had to do a seance to receive it." <laughs> that's my favorite thing about group chats when two conversations are going on at once but yeah we're oh yeah so what i was saying before is that libertarianism can't fit in the libertarian left quadrant anymore because they don't fucking want us i mean you can have somebody like agorism where you have Konkin who says that he was to the left of rothbard and people who haven't read Rothbard's piece that he was talking about, they just assume, oh, it's because of his wage labor stance. So obviously he must be closer to a mutualist. So obviously he's in the libertarian left and obviously he's an anti-capitalist because you look at his class theory and obviously, look, he's against capitalism here. He's talking about state capitalists. But then they ignore everything as where he's talking about, oh, yeah, I know this is an ideology about entrepreneurship and we like markets. Oh, I just think wage labor isn't as economically efficient as contracting. So, you know, a free, a free market would have more contractor labor than wage labor. They don't open up uh, a new libertarian manifesto and see that it's dedicated to Ludwig von Mises in it. <laughs> and so they assume that, oh, yeah, mutualism is just uh, mutualism yeah. and agorism. That's just, you know, those are just two very similar ideologies, but it's not it's not like anarcho-capitalism at all. So they'll take Famous agorist. anti-capitalist Ludwig von Mises. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's not like whatever. Konkin is talking about in his pieces, it's really nothing at all too dissimilar to what Mises would talk about because I have a book from Mises where I'll, I'll go grab that real quick. While he's grabbing that, I'll say well, that uh, okay. and it's called a critique of interventionism. So what Mises in here is critiquing is the exact same thing that Konkin calls state capitalists, which are people that are detrimental to the market because they're sucking up resources. They, they're pushing entrepreneurs out and they're using the state to their advantage. That's what Konkin called a state capitalist. Then he has the regular capitalists, which are just people like making a living, doing work, and they're, you know, they're morally neutral. They're not using the state, but are also not actively going against the state. The and then he has the, yeah, what? The investor, right? That's the, yeah. that's the good class, essentially. Yeah, and then he has like the you know people that are practicing counter economics, those sorts of entrepreneurs that. Oh yeah, these are like he he considers the entrepreneur a counter-economist. And so that's part of the class theory. That's what Wally Conger put together. Like Wally Conger took all of Rothbard, uh, not Rothbard, Conkin's writings and put that together. So you have people yeah, that they don't take any of this context. Yeah, what's up? Something else that should be mentioned is Conkin always called himself a Rothbardian. He always considered himself a Rothbardian. He just had some disagreements with Rothbard's application of his yeah. uh, his theory, his philosophy, but Konkin always, you know, nominally agreed with him on the philosophy, just not always in how it would be applied. And also, uh, if you listen to the episode of 
uh, Pete Quinones' show where he interviews Willie Conker, listen to them talking about the so-called libertarian socialists and libertarian leftists of today. Wally Conger takes a giant shit on them. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the dude who wrote the left libertarian class analysis, as it's called in the subtitle. Like, yeah, he, he it's hates not them. the same thing. He hates them. Konkin hated them. I mean, Konkin was not a libertarian socialist. As much as the libertarian socialists might want to claim Konkin, that was not what Konkin was. Why is that actually the case? I see so many syndicalists and mutualists who say, who actually like Konkin a lot because he kind of uh, encouraged the labor theory of value. Uh, it's so uh, weird. He didn't. He understood subjective value. He did not like yeah, yeah. any like Marxist view like uh, the LTV. The issue is that because Konkin considered himself a left libertarian, and he was part of the new left in the 60s and the 70s, and because he his his strategy can can be adopted by any form of market anarchist, like it's not exclusive to any form, an anarcho-capitalist can use counter-economics, a mutualist can use counter-economics, an anarcho-syndicalist can use counter-economics, so it's a very broad ideology. So I have no problem with a mutualist using agorism. It's just when they try to go and say, like, oh, no, an ANCAP can't be an agorist, and you're a fucking idiot for trying, well, that's, that's when I need to have issues with it. And so that's why I think, like, where the fuck can liber right libertarianism even fit in it? Because, number one, they say we're not real libertarians, because we're not leftists. <laughs> They say ANCAPs aren't real anarchists because they believe in capitalism and we're not capitalists, we're just bootlickers. <laughs> so we don't have a place on the left. No. And I've said this before on another episode, we don't have a place on the right because you take a look at the authoritarian right and like the populist right that's growing in this country. They're anti-capitalist. They're very much the right-wing socialists that we've seen in the past. And you know, that Rothbard talked about and left and yeah. right. Yeah. America is just in this weird finicky position where because it started as the first liberal revolution in the world, the people that were trying to conserve that ended up becoming the conservatives. And that's how you see figures like Barry Goldwater and Calvin Coolidge being conservatives because they were trying to conserve this new order, but they're not conservatives in the broader sense. So you get this whole mix up of what conservative means. And then the neoconservatives come along, the paleoconservatives come along. Conservatism in America is especially complicated because a lot of oh, people yeah. still glorify the founders, which were yeah. classical liberals and were, were left at the time. But, conservatism, but yeah. right, but they're like they're they're on the right. They would the founding fathers would be considered on the right in modern American politics. Obviously, they'd yeah. be considered 100%. right libertarians like us, uh, although not as radical as we are. And Hamilton would be a communist, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Hamilton, <laughs> Hamilton the communist. I like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but that's what complicates American conservatism as well is that it has these classical liberal roots that's different from like European conservatism, like the Edmund Burke and the monarchists and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's so weird in Europe. Like the liberals always used to be the moderate libertarians, essentially, compared yeah. to U.S. standards. Mm -hmm. And one thing about the uh, left libertarians, um, the anarcho syndicalists, the anarcho communists, the anarcho, you know, whatever, right? is they'd sooner ally with their authoritarian um, counterparts <clears throat> than with, let's say, the individualists, the ANCAPs, right? Because they hate capitalism more than they hate the state. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's just a sad reality. 
Shout out to Ace Arcist on Twitter. He was arguing with one of these left libertarian guys. Oh, he's always about, doing it. <laughs> he's always yeah, doing of course. It. He always finds these like 15 follower accounts and gets into a <laughs> <laughs> It's so unfair. He's like a 3,000 follower account. So he's always getting like 100 likes on his owns. And then these other people are like 10 followers, zero likes. And they're just trying their damnedest to push this boulder up the hill. <laughs> He was arguing with some libertarian socialist type about uh, libertarian versus left unity. And the the libertarian socialist was arguing for left unity. He's like, I can't ally with people who support capitalism in any form. And and he tags some uh, like Marxist-Leninist account. And the Marxist-Leninist comes in there and he's like, dude, after the revolution, I'm putting you in a trench. And the libertarian <laughs> socialist guy just doesn't know how to react. It's the funniest thread. I don't know where it went. It was like the a authoritarian week ago, left. It was is constantly so saying, funny. "Like we're gonna kill those anarchities after the revolution." Yeah, and you still see more left unity bios than lib unity or right unity, because a lot of right libertarians rightfully understand that fascists would also put us in camps after the revolution because mm -hmm. we're detrimental to their order. So you see far less right libertarians that will say, "Oh, right unity." Right. But then you'll see anarcho-communists that'll be like, oh, yeah, no, of course, yeah, so what if the if the Marxists are going to put us in camps after and they're going to put us up against the wall and force us into labor camps? At, Still, least, you know, yeah, and, yeah. And, At least we're not capitalists. <laughs> and Porter, um, when, you, when you said, uh, uh, when we were talking about Ace arguing with these 15 follower accounts and you said that uh, whenever they argue with them, they're pushing the, uh, the a rock up the hill. Uh, <laughs> it... I uh, I'm comparing them to Sisyphus. <laughs> they they become Sisyphus, eternally pushing a boulder up a hill, only Which to have so it fall funny. back down on them <laughs> when they get to the top. <laughs> it is so very fitting for Ace. <laughs> he is very much Camus fanboy. I, I I like that about him. Yeah, but yeah. So it's like, where the f I, I'm not even concerned about where the fuck libertarianism falls in because I've I don't care about compasses. I believe either you like liberty or you don't, and that's where you fall, and then the rest of it is all different flavors of statism. It's so all I, about principle and being consistent. Yeah. So it's like, listen, if you like, if your preferred economic system is a commune, hey, fuck if I care, I'm just not going to hang out with you. Uh, maybe I'll have a beer with you, but I'm not going to live on your fucking commune. I'll stay out if you don't like me, and you stay out of my place. I don't give a shit. So I'm not going to go and say, like, an ANCOM is not a real anarchist. I'm not going to say an anarcho-syndicalist is not a real anarchist because they've had this title for longer than us. They've had the theory for longer than us. I'll give them their due credit. But all I care about is do they care more about freedom or do they care more about their economic system? Because if they care more about their economic system and they're going to ally with tankies, you're not an anarchist. In the same way that if I see a Hoppian that would prefer to ally with a fascist, I'm sorry, but you are not a real anarchist. Because you're betraying your principles of freedom to own the other side. And at the same time, I do want to make this point clear. I don't want to get too far into strategy. We've got another episode planned about that. Yeah. But uh, not all uh, right populism is bad. It's, you know, allying with fascists, obviously, is not the same thing. <laughs> but uh, Tom DiLorenzo, I think, made a good point in our interview with him when he says that uh, Rothbard's conception of, of populism included things like the Mises Institute, which is uh, popular education and trying to spread these ideas to a popular audience and not 
uh, trying to get Emperor Trump installed. <laughs> it's not. It's not what he meant. Populism is such a meaningless term. <laughs> yeah, and I'm a hundred percent fine with allying with people uh, who who oppose uh, the, those who would violate private property and hurt innocent people and stuff like that. But not when they themselves want to violate private property and hurt innocent people in other ways. Yeah. Like, I know a, a lot of the conservatives who are talking about BLM right now and all the riots going on, you know, uh, oppose burning down small businesses and stuff like that. And I'm 100% okay with them. But I don't, I, I don't think uh, right populism includes allying with this pe these people because then they turn around and they're like, yeah, the cops should uh, basically enforce a police state for the foreseeable future. And uh, that's <laughs> completely antithetical liberty too I, I always bring it back to carl hess but he says uh oh, this is a great quote in the death of politics he, he says i'd rather live with uh detroit washington a watts in flames than an entire nation snug in a garrison and yeah. uh, i think that's how our conception should be like i don't i'm i've been firmly against all of these riots and the destruction of property i know there's and here's the point that's really bothered me is that how many libertarians and 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 caps and anarchists have been willing to compromise their principles and just be like, oh, they have insurance. Don't worry about these businesses burning down. Yeah, that's bullshit. I've been firmly against these. But, you know, the solution is not to militarize the cops even more and have APCs rolling down the street. It's roof Koreans. Like, grab a rifle, stand on top of your business, shoot looters, and see how quickly these riots stop in your town. And also, like, the the insurance argument's so bad because someone loses no matter what. Yeah. And it's like, wealth is still destroyed through these... It's, uh, it's the broken looting. window fallacy. It's literally. literally. It's literally. literally the broken window fallacy. <laughs> like, with actual broken windows. Right. It's yeah, just... I mean, what is, what is insurance? Everybody that has it is paying into it to support other people in the case of an emergency. If an entire town is burning down... Well, insurance isn't doing too good. I mean, look at disaster insurance after a disaster. It's not very functional. Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, even if they did have insurance, uh, as Aiden said, the point wouldn't be valid. But as a practical matter, many, many insurance policies specifically leave out civil unrest because they know that if there's if there's widespread civil unrest, they could get a ton of claims at once right and that's not how insurance works it's supposed to be for extreme circumstances and uh the, you know there's a pool of money like you're saying jay and so for for that reason a lot of insurance contracts have a clause that exempts um civil unrest for reasons that you can make a claim so it, just as a practical matter a lot of these businesses don't actually have insurance even if they did, of course, Aiden would be right, but they just don't. They, they, some of this damage is, is permanent and will put these people out of business forever. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I mean, and there was a study that came out from Yelp the other day using Yelp data. 60% uh, of business closures from the COVID lockdowns are now permanent. And uh, you want to destroy people's lives and businesses on top of this because uh, some idiot cop shot some girl in her apartment. And, and you're going to take out your, your anger on the rest of the town instead of the people who deserve it. It's ridiculous. Which also, have you seen that like bumper sticker slogan that's going around everywhere? It's like, why does property damage uh, necessitate murder, but murder doesn't necessitate property damage? Like, 
because someone who's violently stripping me of my property is using violence and is posing a threat to my life. You can't shoot someone who is running down the street with your TV, but they break into your house at three in the morning. It's perfectly safe to assume that they are willing to do harm to you so you can use violence. But if somebody is murdered, you can't just go and start burning down innocent people's businesses because you're upset. It's collectivist thinking. It's yeah. it's considering private property as an abstract class and human life as an abstract class and not thinking about individuals. It's, uh, you know, an individual was killed by police and, and it's not... It's or I mean, in the example of private property, an individual who was attacking somebody and attacking their property is killed by the owner. That is not the same thing as uh, people attacking private property just because someone was killed. You see what I'm saying? They're yeah. Uh, they're they're mixing up. There's I I hate cops so much, dude. <laughs> All right, I hate that we have to have this conversation. Like it's it's yeah. come to this. People are burning down their own cities or other people's cities, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. No, you I can think bust. A lot of these protesters are coming from other places. You, you can bust in rioters to destroy a city, but you can't uh, have somebody drive thirty minutes to another town to defend it. Exactly. Or, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I gotta go and. Um, fulfill the needs uh, and wants of <clears throat> people so i uh, unfortunately gotta head off yeah. aiden's okay, culvert has not been up <laughs> <laughs> his culvert has not been burned down in the riots so aiden's show up for work I, unfortunately <laughs> i mean all right later later maybe burning some businesses is okay <laughs> if i don't have to work only if it helps <laughs> the podcast more but it's an egoist perspective on it i guess Moving slightly off that onto a similarly related uh, topic. So since we understand that like libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism as we understand it today, I would even argue agorism doesn't have that much of a place on the libertarian left because of how much they fucking hate us. So even though Rothbard's article is very informative on the history, it has no bearing on reality because we will never be accepted in the libertarian left. We have to homestead our own quadrant. So I will take the libertarian <laughs> we're right going to for make now. our own our own quadrant, our property, because we're homesteading it. <laughs> Lib right wins again. <laughs> but we're selling off the, the, the current <laughs> Lib right quadrant and homesteading our own. <laughs> we're going off the frontierism. We're, <laughs> we're going to another continent. Uh, but with that in mind, I mean, Porter and I, we've obviously you know, shifted ideological titles. Porter has done it twice now, but about a year ago. You... I'm... Dude, I've gone back and forth on the label agorism so many times. Yeah, it's, not, so... it's been more than twice. I just like periodically take it in and out of my bio yeah. and all my social media. I don't know. Yeah, I don't same know. here for me. This is like maybe my third time uh, using agorism as a title. But I, I would say like a year ago, all of us would have been calling ourselves ANCAPs, right? Yeah. Probably, yeah. yeah. And Tim, do you still call yourself an ANCAP? Uh, yeah, like I have, regarding these labels, uh, I've watched a streamer called Wash, I think you might also know. Oh, He's fuck Wash. libertarian oh socialist. And I rewatched his debate with, um, wait, who was it again? Oh my god, I forgot. The, the presidential candidate who was in Iraq. And Kokesh? Yeah, Kokesh, right. And... They were essentially also just having this weird terminology debate, which is kind of unnecessary. And yeah, that's all it turns bring into. That's all forward. it ever turns into. 
Yeah, and um, he, Kokesh didn't just use the label ANCAP, he also used the label Voluntarist. And for some time, I referred to myself not as an ANCAP, but Voluntarist, because essentially then leftists can't it's badge just... at you for calling yourself an anarchist. <laughs> but I, I just don't like the term Voluntarist. Yeah, it's, it's so like weird. It. So I've, I don't like it either. I've basically it doesn't hold the same weight as anarchist does. Yeah, yeah. I've identified as an anarchist for basically a year now. And I, while I had my issues with the label, I never really um, let it down. I just put it away. Yeah. For me, it's just like I've remained economically and philosophically an anarcho-capitalist for this entire time. That'll still be my preferred system. It's just in light of the last few months, I've decided that the strategy of agorism is more worth it, and it's easier just to call yourself an agorist than to explain, yeah, no, I'm an anarcho-capitalist that really likes the practice of agorism, so I like to use counter-economics, but, you know, I'm still very much close to Rothbardian. No, it's easier to say agorist. Yeah. But then the more time you spend with agorists, and you hate agorists. <laughs> the more time you spend <laughs> with anarcho-capitalists... <laughs> I can remember some agorist who, on, on, on Instagram who was just, his main task was basically to distance himself from capitalism. He, he wrote an essay which was called Ditch Capitalism or something like that and was just blatantly retarded. <laughs> the more time you spend with him, the more time you hate him, and the more time you want to go back to the term anarcho-capitalism. Especially when you see so many people that used to be anarcho-capitalists and they go down... Because here's the thing, Porter and I have noticed. Libertarians on Instagram go down the authorite pipeline. But libertarians on Twitter go to the lib-left pipeline. So you see on Twitter a lot of former anarcho-capitalists or ANCAP-adjacent anarchists, libertarian anarchists, that they go and they start bashing capitalism. And they start going down the lib-left pipeline. And they start sounding, it's still not like mutualist territory, but they start sounding more like Tuckerite anarcho-individualists. And they're making all these weird arguments against capitalism. And all that really makes me want to do besides wring their necks is double down on the term anarcho-capitalism. But then I also hate having all the terminology debates associated with anarcho-capitalism. I think the term libertarian anarchist is really a mouthful and leads you to the same route as the debates with anarcho-capitalism. So I'm not a fan of any of those. But you still need a title, and then you can't go anarchist because then they're like, oh, what's your, what, so what is your, what are you, a communist? No, I believe in Austrian economics. You're down the same route again. So it's like, what the fuck are we doing? Yeah, it's, it's really hard. I'd, I've gone back and forth. Like I said, I had Rothbardian in my Twitter bio for a little while, for like a month uh, now. And then I, I recently changed it to anarcho Babylon beast because that's pretty much where I am. Like the Babylon bees view, on, like the cynicism about politics, the anti-war views, the Christian theology, but full anarchist. It's like a combination of Michael Malice and the Babylon bee writers. <laughs> That's kind of where I am right now, <laughs> but the label's just a joke. I'm I've kind of given up on the usefulness of labels. Like people, people I know already know where I stand, and I'm okay with that. Uh, I, I've learned more about strategy. I've got I've developed different ideas about the proper strategy. I've uh, I mean I'm so very sympathetic to counter economics. I think you need a, a broader strategy, but that can be the core. I'm, I haven't rejected that part of agorism. It's just it's more like the label, not the actual ideology of agorism that I've kind of moved away from. And uh, I've learned more about economics, of course, but like my principles are the same as they've always been. It's just about uh, figuring out how to communicate that. And more and more, I think just 
labels aren't really helpful at all. So I'm just going to joke around. Anarcho-Babylon Beast, we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, I think on Instagram, I still have Backyard Separatist, which I like. It was it was from a meme about like uh, awakened ideologies. Um, and it was just one of the ones near the lip right area of the, the compass. I thought it was funny because it sounds like Hoppian agorism, basically. It's like separatism, but it's backyard. It's like a garden or something. That's kind of the vibe I got from it. I'm pretty sure it was you entirely meant to be a joke, but I like it. That was my idea. <laughs> Yeah, I do have to give you credit for that. That was a pretty good one. I, I came very close to putting that in my Twitter bio instead of anarcho-Babylon Beeism. I had so but many I people. on that one. When I, when I was in my Instagram bio, I had so many people trying to fight with me over it, and it was just a troll. <laughs> I remember you got so many DMs as soon as you <laughs> changed it. It's per, it is the perfect title, I'm telling you. But yeah, I mean, so for what do me, you all think? Do you, like, do you like communicating using labels? now or do, are you kind of in the same boat i am where it's mostly just a joke to you and you just like talking with people about your actual <laughs> beliefs and not I've worrying done, about what you call it i've done a lot of joke ones like i had anarcho synthwavism in my uh, bio for a couple <laughs> of weeks but you know i just do that regularly just to uh, fuck around i always have like my real identifier and then my joke identifier and i mean anarcho vice cityism that was, yeah, yeah, oh that was my god, that was my idea actually. Yeah, I can remember writing <laughs> but that. It like, uh, <laughs> I, like, I like having the label as an identifier so people know what they're getting into at least. But then at the same time, I hate having to debate with people over it. Yeah. So I've gone through market, I've done like Rothbardian market anarchist, regular market anarchist, uh, Rothbardian agorist, uh, and, and regular ancap. I think that's uh, a, that's a good one. Rough party and market anarchist or something like that. I think it's that's just too mouth. It's just too mouthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's mouthy, but it's pretty accurate and it's, it's very accurate. just rough party and like, period. Yeah, yeah, Roth, yeah, regular Roth Barney was another one. I, I I like the term market anarchist because I've got no problem with mutualists existing. I've got no problem with the rest of those people existing. I my obviously my preferred system is a private property oriented market system like capitalism. But I'm just sick of the debates. There's so much there's so much baggage that comes with that term. We yeah. didn't even get into the history of that term in this episode. I don't think we should. We, I know, we discussed we, it before. We we talked about it with uh Pear Byland a little bit. Um yeah. yeah, there's just so much baggage that comes with that term, it's not entirely helpful. Yeah. Like I if I I if I had to pick one, it would either be Rothbardian market anarchist or just market anarchist. And I I mean politically also. I, I am hating everybody lately. I go on Instagram, I hate everybody. I'm going on Twitter, I hate everybody. I only like you people. So I'm feeling very much H.L. Mencken. Because if you read Mencken, he never had anything nice to say about anybody. Yeah. He was like uh, cynic number one his whole life. He was yeah. the, Wait, the that would be yeah, it's just oh, being that's a, a good one. That's, a good one. That's, basically, that's basically just Rothbardianism. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Lincoln had a huge influence on Rothbard. Yeah. But I found, so that, like, I, I I found a great quote about, found a great quote from him earlier today. I'd heard it before, but I finally wrote it down. It's under democracy, one party always devotes its chief energies to trying to prove that the other party is unfit to rule and both commonly succeed and are right. <laughs> I, uh, his democracy quotes are so fucking killer. I love it. They're so good. But So it's like, Politically, I'm gonna post that I would one call on myself like a Mencanite. Uh, economically, a Rothbardian, <laughs> yeah. and strategically, like a Konkanite. 
<laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. I did have that in my bio for a very short time on Twitter. It was uh, like uh, politically Rothbardian, strategically Konkin, or uh, what was it? Philosophy of, of Rothbard, strategy of Konkin, something like that. I don't know. So basically, you sum the this point. episode up. The, 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 the strategy for ANCAPs, libertarian anarchists, whatever you want to call yourself, is just to ascend politics and don't refer to labels or make up your own labels. Yeah, pretty much. But I think like for ANCAPs, I think market anarchists would be the best way to go down because we have the best yeah. argument for economics. Yeah, and when you're it's debating the market, one. When you're debating the market, if you know Austrian economics, it is very easy to even own a mutualist. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's also possible to make, like, especially when arguing with left leftists and left wing market anarchists, you you can still make some utilitarian takes, because especially because of Mises. But I think that's another yeah. topic, and we always oh, when, talk about that. <laughs> when you're debating, I've been more sympathetic to to mm-hmm. Mises's utilitarian recently, utilitarianism yeah, recently. Pretty actually. good. Like I, he did. Like a, a rule utilitarianism is what he called it. It was what Henry Hayes, Henry Hazlitt, Henry Hazlitt, however you pronounce his last Hazlitt. name. It's what he was too. Yeah, Hazlitt. Um, when they, you're debating, uh, when you're debating economics with other libertarians and anarchists that do not share the same private property views, you have to go utilitarian because yeah. when they're debating like voluntary, well, you can't say, well, no, your system isn't actually voluntary because that's a shit argument, and we know why they use it on us all the time. So. That's a shit argument. You gotta argue utility, basically. You gotta argue like, okay, we all agree the state shouldn't exist. So what is the what is the economic system that's gonna drive the most wealth and prosperity for everybody? We have the answer. We have the proof. Even restricted markets bring more wealth than any other system in the world. So and they're based on private property. So we know we can win the economic arguments. So market anarchists is probably the best way to go. There's also that's a that's a weakness of the term voluntarist as well. Is that yeah, people make up yeah. like they, they you can pretty much cram anything into that term that you don't like and call it involuntary, which yeah, it doesn't make you correct, but it just makes it harder yeah. to use the term. This is what I also really yeah. hated about the debate between Walsh and Kokesh was that the debate they, they were they both agreed that they don't like involuntary hierarchy and that they want to abolish it, but the the way they, they they essentially see what is voluntary and what is not is for everyone i think it's different so it's really hard to have a debate regarding that yeah of course the libertarian socialist like vosh says that uh capitalist ownership patterns in the mean of production means of production are involuntary which we would yeah, disagree yeah, with and so it's not yeah not a useful term not entirely useful at least yeah, so it's really hard. That's why I also, even though I got the beginning of my journey to uh, anarcho-capitalism, essentially, when I read Mises, I never really abolished the utilitarian takes Mises essentially wrote down because they are still important. And I think, I don't know, it, libertarian would, would, libertarianism wouldn't be the same without it. Like, you can't argue with a libertarian socialist about property rights because they don't want to listen to you and they don't accept it. So... It doesn't bring anyone forward in the debate. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, just came up with the perfect descriptor. Austrian market anarchist. Yeah, that would be pretty accurate. There we go. AMA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an AMA. AMA. Put it in your bio and 
when people ask you questions, be like, why are you asking me a question? <laughs> it doesn't stand for asking me anything. It's Austrian market <laughs> anarchists. There we go. I'm going to change that real quick. Uh, you are going to say something, Porter, before I interrupted you? Uh, I think I was, but I forgot it. It wasn't that important. Oh. Yeah, I think we we, I'm, we we pretty yeah. much covered everything. I'm still... Yeah. You can go with Austrian market anarchist. I'm going to keep Babylon Beast for now. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a pretty good one. We'll have to change it eventually as soon as it gets associated with anarcho-capitalism. But <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Oh God, I hate that. It, it all just boils down to terminology debates. I fucking hate terminology. Yeah, it's, it's retarded. It's uh, these debates are just unnecessary. But unfortunately, they are still important for politics for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Or to go anarchist. I mean, to anarchist. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I. When people ask me, I just tell them I'm an anarchist. Like people who don't know anything about politics. And they're like, who are you voting for this election? <laughs> they're like, have you decided if you're going to vote for Biden or Trump? I'm like, I'm an anarchist. They're like, you're a what? <laughs> so I do it for the reaction most of the time, but I do just like plain anarchist. That's a, that's a fun term. Yeah, I, 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 seriously asking, I go market anarchist. If there's like, in that case, like who are you voting for? I'm an anarchist. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, uh, this is better. This is better than the last time we did it. I like this episode. Yeah, good this one. was a good discussion. Yeah. Oh, anything else, guys? Uh, think check that. out the new designs. Oh, my God. We oh, forgot thank you, check Tim. Yes. Um, yeah. We talked about Rothbard a lot this episode. I made a new design uh, that you can get on a bunch of different items in the Teespring store uh, that's inspired by a Rothbard quote from, I believe, The Ethics of Liberty. Uh, Maybe I don't know. Correct me. Is it is it the ethics of liberty or uh, what's the other big one? I'm blinking on the name. Jay, help me out. Anatomy of the state. No, the Anatomy other libertarian. The what? Anatomy of the state. No, the other libertarian book. Um, the Libertarian Manifesto. But that's the oh, subtitle. So there's ethics of liberty, and there is for a new liberty. For a new liberty. I think it was ethics of liberty. Yeah, I think it wasn't ethics yeah. of liberty. I'm not sure. Well, Either way, the, the quote is war is mass murder, conscription is slavery, taxation is robbery. And there's a really cool design. Yeah, uh, it's really good. I think it's really cool. I'm proud of it. I'm, I'm pretty it proud is. of it. It's a, uh, so check, check out the Teespring the store. Page. We're always adding designs. Yeah. It's also on the Instagram page, yeah. Yeah, so uh, yeah. But, you know, I, already, I put the plug for the merch store in the middle. Uh, for some reason, Craig decides to crap out in the last minute. <laughs> Goodbye, bot Craig. Yeah, so we still have GR who's recording, so at least we have the ending. But yeah, uh, check Thank out the merch. Craig's tag along friend. <laughs> if you're on YouTube, like the like the show, comment, subscribe to the channel. If you're on iTunes, uh, leave a rating, please, please leave reviews. I keep checking it to see if there's anything funny. None of you people are doing it. I really want to read something funny. We can't leave <laughs> reviews for ourselves constantly. Both <laughs> <laughs> from our parents. <laughs> <laughs> And besides that, I mean, share the show and uh, I guess we'll catch you guys next time.